So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the uh, price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number that day. Now, as always, I'd like to start with a question. My one for you this morning is, what do you think is the greatest threat that the church faces today? Maybe it is the growing woke culture that we see, which sees Christianity as increasingly offensive and would like to stop us from talking about it. Maybe it is the growing influence of celebrity atheists who love nothing better than to belittle people who believe in God. Or maybe it's other religions who don't like the fact that we talk about Jesus being the only way of salvation at all. Well, today's passage shows us that the biggest threat that the church faces is not actually something external, it's something on the inside. The biggest threat that the church faces then and today is the Christmas tree. Now, before I get thrown out of the church for being a humbug, (coughs) allow me to explain. Up on the screen behind me, you will see two pictures of trees. One is a Christmas tree and one is an apple tree. Now, they're both from my home. Christmas tree we had last year. It looks wonderful, doesn't it? It's beautiful to look at. It's beautifully decorated. It smells lovely. And it reminds us all through the month of December and earlier, if my kids had their their way, that it is not any time of year. This is Christmas. But the thing is about the Christmas tree, it is dead. It looks good, 
but it is dead. You wouldn't know that to begin with, but as time goes on, the needles start dropping off. And eventually, come January, the slightest touch of that thing sends needles flying everywhere. Now the apple tree, on the other hand, it's not really that much to look at. It's a pretty warty old thing, but it is live and well. We know it's well because every year we get a bumper crop of apples. Now as we dive into this passage, we'll see that the greatest threat to the church is not out there somewhere, it's actually in here. It's in our own hearts. The thing that we must be on guard against as God's people is our own propensity to value outward appearances over the state of our actual hearts. This morning I hope that we'll see three things in our passage. So firstly, radical generosity. Secondly, deadly deceit. And thirdly, glorious grace. So point one, radical generosity. The passage begins by describing the church that we would all like to belong to. Verse 32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. This is a church that is united and cares deeply for one another. It is a church that is radically generous. Verse 34 continues, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed, I can't talk, distributed to anyone who had need. This is what God's people are supposed to look like. Unlike communism, where people are forced to give up their possessions and compliance is enforced by fear, this is a community which loves one another and which cares for one another, where people are of one heart and one mind. The picture being painted in these verses is of people who have been transformed by God and as a result of that transformation, love each other more than they love their stuff. Something has happened to this group of people that's caused them to see possessions and people differently. As their love for one another grows, their love for money and possessions diminishes. They love one another more than they love the latest phone, more than they love a foreign holiday, more than they love a bigger house. Because as their grip on each other tightens, the grip with which they're held by possessions is loosened. This might make you feel a little bit old. Next year, the film Schindler's List is going to be 30 years old. It's about a man named Oscar Schindler, who at the beginning of the movie is motivated by one thing, by money. When the rest of the world is coming to terms with the fact that World War II is breaking out, he sees it as an opportunity to make money. He moves to Poland and begins manufacturing ammunition. Now, at the same time that this is going on, the systematic persecution of the Jews begins really heating up. Now, as awful as this is, Schindler once again sees this as an opportunity. He fills his factory with Jewish workers because their labour is so much cheaper than anywhere else. The thing is, as the movie goes on, he begins to change. 
he begins to see the Jews not just as a means of making money, but as people. He begins to love them. As his love for them grows, the grip which money once had on him begins to loosen. At the end of the movie, Schindler has used almost all his money to pay for bribes so that people can be freed from the Nazis, so that they can be freed from awful conditions and what, let's face it, most likely meant death. In the final scene, all of those who he has rescued come out to thank him before he goes off into hiding. As he looks at all those people, he is filled with regret. He looks back at how he used to throw away his money on now what seems like complete frivolity. He looks at his car and now instead of seeing something which he enjoys and is proud of, he just sees 10 more people that he could have rescued but didn't. He breaks down in tears and says, I could have done more. I could have saved more. It's almost impossible to watch that scene without crying yourself. Now for me, that's partly because what happened to the Jews is so awful. But it's also because every time I watch it, I feel convicted. Compared to 95% of the globe, I live in comfort and luxury that is seen almost nowhere else. There are people around us in the world who don't have fresh water. There are people who don't have enough to eat. The reason I find this scene so difficult to watch is I know that many of the decisions that I make reflect a heart which really shows that I care more about money and possessions than about people. Now often when we feel like that, our conviction feels very strong, but sadly it doesn't last long because then our defence mechanisms begin to kick in. We begin comparing ourselves to other people. We acknowledge that, yeah, globally I'm pretty rich, but then we start looking at people more closely. I tend to bring to mind all the Christians that I can think of who I deem to be wealthier than me. And I think, yeah, if they were more generous, that would make a really big difference. If they gave away their money, that would really make a big difference. And then I think, if I had more money, I would definitely give it away for sure. In fact, if I get a pay rise, then I will become more generous. But here's a hard truth that we all need to hear. If we're not generous when we have a little, we're not going to be generous when we have a lot. John Wesley once said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Has your wallet been converted? Radical generosity is radical. It means giving sacrificially. Not just giving where we have abundance, but giving even when it hurts. Above all that though, it means loving people more than we love stuff. That's what set the early church apart. They love one another so much that they wanted to share their money and their possessions. Chapter 4 finishes with an example of a church member who embodied this loving attitude. Barnabas sells his land and he gives the money from the sale to the church. He lays it at the apostles' feet. The picture painted at the end of chapter 4 is almost idyllic. It is like heaven on earth. But the thing is, trouble is just around the corner. 
In chapter 5, we see point two, deadly deceit. Now, in the preceding years, there had been much misunderstanding, much disobedience and much disappointment. God's people had been promised that though things were hard now, God was going to dwell among them. And because of that, they would know unity like they had never known before. There would be no needy person that lived among them. That they would overcome those that tried to oppose them. Now, to begin with, it looked like all those promises were being fulfilled. But then greed and deceit crept into people's hearts. This greed was uncovered by the leaders and to stop it from spreading throughout the people, God judged those who were responsible. Now I should probably say I'm not talking about Acts chapter 5 anymore. I'm talking about Joshua chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Joshua has finally led the people across the Jordan into the promised land. There's a wonderful victory in Jericho and everything looks like all of God's promises are going to be finally and fully fulfilled. But then a man named Achan decides to keep back some of the plunder he takes, which was supposed to be dedicated to God. Now, although the Israelites are now in the promised land, the power of sin was still standing between them and what God had promised. A new era had become, but really it just served as a reminder that the final and full era, where we would truly see God's promises being fulfilled, was still in the future. In Acts chapter 5, this pattern repeats itself. Anias and Sapphira have just seen what Barnabas has done. The response he got, I mean, he got a cool new nickname. He's called Barnabas and he gets to be called the son of encouragement. I mean, everybody loves Barney, don't they? <laughs> they want to be more like him, so they sell their property as well. Now, I don't know, they might have sold it with good intentions, but then perhaps as they hold the money in their hands, they consider some of the things they could do with it. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. He bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, the passage doesn't tell us how, but somehow Peter knew that Ananias was keeping back some of the money. Peter challenges Ananias and rebukes him, and Ananias dramatically drops dead. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira walks in, and the same thing happens again. Peter gives her the opportunity to come clean, but she sticks to her story. She likewise drops dead. The irony of verse 10 in chapter 5 shouldn't be missed here. Instead of laying their money at the apostles' feet, they both drop dead at the apostles' feet. And in the same way that Sapphira joined her husband in conspiring, she now joined her husband in the grave. Now, the text does not say directly that God struck down Ananias and Sapphira. So some have suggested that actually what happened was they felt so bad about what happened, they both had a heart attack. I mean, that's possible. But Peter does seem to know what's going to happen to Sapphira. And also the response of the rest of the church seems to imply they believed God's hand was at work. Twice in verse 5 and 11, 
it says that great fear seized them all. So why is this reaction so strong? Well, the problem here is not just that they kept back some of the money. It was theirs to keep in the first place. Peter says that to them in verse 4. Didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The problem is they tried to look, make it look like they were being more generous than they actually were. It's not just that they valued money above people. The real problem was that they valued outward appearance over the state of their hearts. Jesus came as a saviour for sinners. The people that he had the harshest words for were not those whose sin was most obvious, it was those who tried to cover up their sin, who pretended that they weren't sinful. People who acted like Christmas trees, more concerned with outward appearance than the state of their hearts. Because those people thought that they didn't need to be rescued. The thing that really scares me about this passage is not just that Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, it's that I know I'm often guilty of the same sin that they committed. All too often I'm more concerned with outward appearances than the state of my heart. I often do what looks like good things, but they're often motivated by sinful motives. All too often, I'm more concerned with outward appearances than the state of my heart. Like Ananias and Sapphira, I crave people's approval. I want to be thought of as a good Christian. I want to be thought of as good at my job. I want to be thought of as a good parent. I even want to be thought of as someone who prays well publicly. So much of what I do is not motivated by doing what is right, but by fear of man. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling thoroughly beaten up by this passage so far. I'm called to be radically generous, and all too often I'm not. And then I'm also called to care more about my heart than outward appearances. But more often than not, I act like a Christmas tree. I'm more concerned with outward appearances. What hope is there for us when we feel like that? Well, let's finish with point three and glorious grace. This passage contrasts the lives of Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. Outwardly, they look pretty similar. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Ananias and Sapphira actually did something very generous. They gave a big wad of money to the church. They did a good thing, but their hearts were never in it. We're called to be like Barnabas, but more often than not, I am like Ananias. So how do I change? Well, maybe I should just go and watch Schindler's List a bunch more times so that I feel guilty enough to go out and be generous. That might lead to some external changes, but if I'm just giving to appease my own guilt, then really I'm no better than Ananias and Sapphira. I need to change not just my actions, I need my heart changed. How do we do that? Well, the answer comes in chapter 4 and verse 33. God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. 
If you hear one thing this morning, I want you to hear this. We can only offer radical generosity when we first and foremost realise that we are the recipients of radical generosity by means of God's glorious grace. To become a Christian, we must see that we don't deserve God's rescue. We've all turned our back on God. We've all lived our lives in complete rebellion against him. The only thing that we truly deserve from God is his judgment. And yet he shows us his grace. For us, that grace comes as a free gift. But for him, it cost more than we could ever imagine. He loved us enough to send his own son to die in our place and take the punishment that we deserve. There has never been and never will be a greater act of sacrificial and radical generosity and grace than God sending his son into the earth to rescue his people. Jesus not only became poor so that we could become rich, he died so that we could live. This isn't just the starting place for Christianity, it's the place where we should live. We don't just start with God's grace and then move on to what we do, we must be fueled by his grace every single day. To grow in holiness is not primarily to look at what we must do, but to look at what has already been done. This is the only way that our hearts can be truly changed. The world tells us that we are worth whatever we have in our bank account. God tells us that we are worth the blood of Jesus Christ. When we really see this, when we really see all that we have in Christ and that what we've been given is ours to keep forever, it changes how we see everything else now. If, you, if like me, you feel guilty as you consider your own lack of generosity, then take your eyes off yourself and instead look at your Redeemer. See the beauty of his generosity and pray that he would implant that deep into your heart. Pray that he wouldn't just open our fingers, pry open our fingers so that we give begrudgingly, but that he would warm our hearts to such an extent that we give joyfully. This quote from Randy Alcorn pretty much summarises everything I'm trying to say. If your life doesn't resound with the thunder of generosity, you have yet to be struck by the lightning of God's grace. Ananias and Sapphira appeared very generous but their hearts were just not in it. They cared more about people's affirmation than doing what was right. They feared man more than they feared God. Well, what, what should we do when we feel the same? Well, once again, this passage gives us the answer. The only way to overcome fear of man, or fear of anything else for that matter, fear of death, fear of illness, fear of pain, is in verse 5 and 11. It's fear of God, right fear of God. Great fear sees the church, 
Now you may well read that and assume that the people saw what happened and were afraid of God. But that wouldn't make sense because when we're afraid of something, we run away from it. But look at verse 14, look what happens. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Their fear didn't drive them away from God, it drove them to him. Michael Reeve describes that kind of fear as follows. He says, it is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from him. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite, to produce in us such a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. Now you might hear of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and think, if I fall out of line, God is going to do the same thing to me. It makes you afraid of God and feeds your suspicion that he is only really putting up with you until his patience runs out and then he's finally going to cast you out. This is the bad kind of fear of the Lord. A great example of the good kind of fear of the Lord can be seen in Genesis chapter 28. In it, Jacob has had a dream where the Lord appears to him and promises Jacob offspring and land and blessing. He promises that he will always be with Jacob and that he will never leave him. The promises are truly incredible. But listen to Jacob's response. He feared and said, how awesome is this place. The goodness and grace of God was so overwhelming it caused fear to well up in Jacob. Not fear of punishment, but fear of an awesome God. The word fear in the Bible is closely linked to the word tremble. Think of some of the things that make you tremble. When you are very afraid, but also when you are very overjoyed. You might tremble when you are facing something which is absolutely terrifying, but you might also tremble when you face something which is truly amazing. Think of a husband who turns to watch his bride walk down the aisle, who trembles with delight. The right fear of God begins when we see his glorious grace, when we see that his judgment is great, but that we no longer need to fear it because that judgment has already fallen. Not on us, but on Jesus, so that those who repent and turn to Jesus can be declared righteous. If, like me, you struggle with fear of man, there is only one remedy. The only answer is the right fear of God. Not a fear that drives you from him, but a fear that drives you to him that draws you into the arms of a loving saviour. When you truly see Christ, who he is and what he has done, then you will finally see you don't need to live for the approval of man because you already have the complete approval of an awesome God through Jesus. I read this passage and I know that my sin is great but I know that my saviour is greater 
If you want to be more like Barnabas and less like Ananias and Sapphira, don't start by looking at what you need to do. Look at what Christ has already done for us.